Good morning again, everybody. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, Lord willing, we will look at verses 8 through 10. And let's ask the Lord to lead us as we get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. Thank you for helping us, um, bringing us back together this week, helping us through a long week. Thank you that you are our Sabbath rest. We ask, Lord, for the refreshing of your word this morning. Father, I pray that you would do what only you can do. You would teach us with the spirit that you have given to us, that you would guide us in all truth. Father, we, <clears throat> we are not capable of applying your word as we ought to. We need the spirit of God to lead us, to sanctify us with your truth. We ask for your help this morning. Lord, I pray this morning, especially for our young people, our teenagers. Father, I pray that this message this morning will resonate in their hearts. As they contemplate their place in this world and what you have called us to. Ask, Father, that you would equip your church you would empower us to do what you have called us to do. We need your help. We ask these things in the name of our Savior. Amen. All right, we're continuing our, our slow journey through Revelation chapter 11. <clears throat> Last week, we looked at verse 7. And as you remember, we are looking at the scenes and the pictures between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. Um, in a couple of weeks, we'll look at the, the last trumpet, the seventh trumpet in the latter part of Revelation 11. But in the meantime, we're giving, given these different perspectives in this interlude between the sixth and seventh chapters. And last week, we looked at verse seven, and it says this, and when they, that is the two witnesses, have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. I just want to remind you of our application from last week as we as we step into verse 8 this morning. Just a reminder that the church is now in this age presently testifying and will soon finish its testimony and complete its commission to witness. That is God has given us a specific mission here and now to witness the mind of God. We talked about what the, the definition of prof prophecy was, that the work of these two witnesses declaring the mind of God, that's what we're doing now. And while we do that, the church is invincible while it's fulfilling its mission. But note, we looked when we started Revelation chapter 11, that there's a picture of the church, and that picture is the temple. And what did we learn about the temple? The temple can be attacked and harmed externally. It can be trampled, but nothing can enter the Holy of Holies and disrupt the most intimate of relationship with Christ and the church. Thirdly, we were introduced last week to the beast, which is the first mention that we find here in the book of Revelation. He is the great antagonist to the church. He's empowered by Satan, and we looked at Daniel 7 in detail that tells us he will wear out the saints of the Most High. We spent a lot of time and, and did, and by the way, we'll get to the beast in detail in Revelation chapter 13, but the point of bringing this out 
is that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has been suffering and will continue to suffer according to the divine appointment of God until he returns. We spent a great deal of time last week building a biblical case for suffering, why the church is, why the church must, and why the church suffers. But 1 Peter 2.15 says this, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it? If, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example, listen to this, so that you might follow in his steps. One of the truths that has been constantly brought to my mind as I study the book of Revelation is that God intends for the church to follow in his steps. And in so doing, the church will rejoice immensely in the victory that the Lord Jesus Christ achieves on behalf of the church, because we will share in that, because we have shared in the same steps in which the Lord Jesus has taken. This is an important truth for us. Uh, the fifth thing that we took away is Christ is now building his eternal kingdom with each conversion of his elect and will soon put all his enemies under his dominion. And we will rejoice when that is brought to, to full fruition. One last thing that we pointed out last week in our study of verse seven is that the fiery judgments that accompanied the prophesying of the two witnesses are the same period of time as what we see in the first four seals and the first four trumpets. That is the temporal judgments that accompany the warnings of the church between the time of Christ's resurrection and his second coming. There's another picture of this that we didn't touch on that I wanted to give you, though. Revelation chapter 12, verse 5 and 6 is, a, is the picture of the woman who flees to the wilderness. The woman in Revelation 12 is the bride of Christ, the church. And listen to this. She, that is the bride, gave birth to a male child one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Any, any idea who that is? Who is the male child that is to rule all the nations? Christ. Lord Jesus Christ, yes. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, picturing the resurrection. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. There's that picture again. Three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days, the same time period as the two witnesses. G.K. Beale notes this. He says that three and a half years that the church witnesses is symbolic and reminds us of the ministry of the Lord Jesus, which lasted for that same period of time. We see the picture of being linked to Christ in his life, in, in his death, and in his resurrection. 
In other words, the church is destined to follow in the steps of the Lord Jesus. That's what's being pictured here. So as we step into verse 8, turn there if you will. It says this, and their dead bodies, that is the dead bodies of the two witnesses, will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. We have an interesting picture here of cities brought um, into this imagery that John is, is giving to us. And, and it's an interesting picture. Scripture is very clear here, by the way. This is symbolic. This is spiritual symbolism. And it says it on the outset. So what is it symbolic of? What is it symbolizing? Well, we think about um, our study through the Old Testament. We see a great deal of mention about cities. And, and as we study through Leviticus and Numbers, there was mention of the cities of refuge, where if you committed manslaughter, not murder, but accidental death, you could flee to that city for protection um, from any recompense that the family of the injured or, or dead could bring to bear. The picture of the cities that we see in Scripture is that cities provide refuge. They provide protection in number. They're typically walled up. They reduce transport costs of goods from producers to consumers. I got economical on you there, uh, talking Marx language. There, But there's also this. There's the cultural exchange of ideas. We're going to see in just a few minutes as we talk about Sodom. Where do we find Lot as Sodom is introduced? He's sitting in the gate of the city, which is where the exchange of ideas takes place. It is the marketplace of ideas, if you will. But there's a sharing of, of resources, large local markets, and in some cases, amenities such as running water, sewage, which we take very much for granted in our culture. But these cities represented prosperity. They represented, and we might put it in our terms, they represented the American dream. Everything great about society and culture are summed up in the picture of these cities. But as we, as we continue to study, we see something very interesting in the book of Revelation. It uses opposing symbolism. Have you picked up on any of that at all? First three chapters, when we study the seven churches, the seven churches, which are the seven lampstands, are contrasted against the synagogue of Satan. We saw as we studied through the mark or the sealing of the saints by the Holy Spirit in regeneration. This is set against the symbolism or the picture in Revelation 13 of the mark of the beast. Um, we see the sealing of the saints versus the earth dweller. This is something that's going to be brought out again for us. And in verse 8, we're introduced to three cities. I say three because there's really three mentioned here. We see Sodom and Egypt. And then what other city? jumps out that's not named but his name yes thank you now why why is jerusalem mentioned we know where the lord jesus was crucified don't we so there's three cities here named and there will be a fourth city introduced to us in revelation 17 and 18 which is what city of babylon 
these are pictures of the same thing. And what is pictured here is a confluence of humanity united in its opposition to Christ and his people. And I'll introduce the term here for the first time in our study in the book of Revelation. This is the picture of Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist. That is opposition set in, in harmony against Christ and his people and will do everything they can to oppose. That's what we're seeing unfolding here. In 1 John chapter 2, turn there. This same John writes in 1 John 2.18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist, that is Antichristos, one who opposes Christ, is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. And this is interesting, by the way. Take note of verse 19 of 1 John chapter 2. The nature of those who oppose Christ is very much wrapped up in the intermingling in the church. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not, or they would have continued with us. But they went out so that they might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. What is the difference, by the way, between those who were of us and then left? walked away from the faith. He says, you have the anointed one. What makes us a child of God? What secures us? What stamps us and preserves us eternally? It's the Holy Spirit. It's not how well we attend church. But he says, you have the anointed one. I write to you, verse 21, not because you do not know the truth, because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Verse 22 tells us the nature, the character of those who are anti-Christos. Verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That is, those who promote a false gospel. Those who promote any means of eternal peace with the Heavenly Father outside of the mediating work of Christ are anti-Christ. Who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, who, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too, too will abide in the Son and in the Father. What is John saying? How do we know the professors from the, from the possessors? It's very simple. You will remain if the Spirit of God does, in fact, indwell you. That's what he's saying here. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. What is that anointing? It's the indwelling Spirit of God. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is, as it is taught to you, abide in him. Matthew Henry, in commenting on that passage, says this, Every man is an antichrist who denies the person or any of the offices of Christ 
And in denying the son, he denies the father also and has no part in his favor while he rejects his great salvation. Let this prophecy that seducers would rise in the Christian world keep us from being seduced. Why is John warning of those who are anti-Christ? To protect us from being seduced by error. The church knows not well who are its true members and who are not. But thus, true Christians were proved and rendered more watchful and humble. True Christians are anointed ones. Their names express this. They are anointed with grace, with gifts and spiritual privileges by the Holy Spirit of grace. The great and most hurtful lies that the father of lies spreads in the world usually are falsehoods and errors relating to the person of Christ. This unction from the Holy One alone can keep us from delusions. Think about that for a second. What keeps you from being led astray by false doctrine? No. There's lots of smart people who are led astray by error. Matthew Henry gets it right here. He says, the Holy One alone keeps us from delusions. While we judge favorably of all who trust in Christ as the divine Savior and obey his word and seek to live in union with them, let us pity and pray for those who deny the Godhead of Christ or his atonement and the new creating work of the Holy Ghost. Let us protect against such anti-Christian doctrine and keep from them as much as we may. I love what Augustine says on this subject as well, and this ties to what Mark's been preaching in James. He says this, let us mark not the tongue, but the deeds. For if all be asked, all with one mouth confess that Jesus is the Christ. If I asked every one of you this morning, is Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God? Most every one of you, I would say, without any hesitation, would say yes. See what he's saying? It's easy to confess with our mouth. There's no gun to our head. And we can fit in very nicely in the group, in the crowd. But he says, let the tongue keep silent a while. Ask the life. If the scripture itself shall tell us that denial is a thing done not only with the tongue, but also with the deeds, then assuredly we find many antichrists if deeds are to be questioned. Not only do we find many antichrists gone out, but many not yet manifest who have not gone out at all. The picture of the cities here that we see in Revelation eleven eight is another picture or personification of the earth dweller. And we have this symbolic contrast. The people of God are identified as the New Jerusalem or the, the, the holy city. So I want you to see here, we're talking about not cities or, or places on the map. We're talking about people. Revelation eleven two, which we, we talked about it a minute ago, says that um, the Gentiles will trample the outer court, the holy city, for 42 months. We labored in the scripture to show that this is the bride of Christ, the picture of the city here, the holy city, scripture calls it. Revelation 21, 2 says, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as what? A bride adorned for her husband. It's a picture of people. So note, we're seeing a reoccurring theme of opposition and preservation as we study through this. The church is opposed. 
but the church is also preserved. The church will appear, as we look at verse 8, to the world to be dead. There is a, a, a picture here of the loss of prominence, the loss of relevance, the loss of influence. We might say in our vernacular, the church has been canceled. And this is a very public display. Notice that their dead bodies lay where? Not on a deathbed in some home somewhere. They lay in the streets. This is public. This is the visual putting down, if you will, of the body of Christ. The murder scene, if you will, the chalk outline with the bodies is said to be Sodom, Egypt, Jerusalem, and shortly Babylon. And I want you to see this morning that these three cities speak to the character of the opposition of the two witnesses, that is the church. What is the character of the earth dweller? Well, city number one here we find, Scripture tells us, is Sodom. Turn to Genesis chapter 19. Excuse me. Genesis chapter 19. I want you to, to see that Sodom here is marked by its spiritual bondage and sexual immorality. In Genesis 19, we find that we pick up after God has conversed with Abraham about sparing the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Why did, why did Abraham want Sodom spared? There's a lot. His nephew had taken up residence in Sodom. And we find, as we look back and read through that account, it was a dreadfully horrific decision that Lot made for both himself and his family. I want you to I want you to think about this chapter or this passage as we read it. And I want I want you to take notice. The scripture calls Lot righteous. And that's because Lot had an imputed righteousness that was wholly outside of himself. Genesis 19 reminds us that Lot's righteousness was not inherent to himself. But I want you to think about Lot's thinking as we look at this. Now, here's a man that scripture defines as a righteous man. I want you to note how he's thinking and the influence of the city on his thinking. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. What was Lot doing there? That's where all the business was happening. That's the cultural center of the city. Lot is conversing. He's engaging in the culture. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Now, why did Lot say, guys, come stay with me? Lot knew what the city was about, didn't he? And so Lot is demonstrating his concern for the the health and well-being of these two visitors and said, guys, come stay with me. And then he says, you may rise up early and go on your way. Notice Lot doesn't say, hey, come stay for a while. Our city is ranked in the rankings of of cities that you would want to go on vacation for in the top 10. So stay. He doesn't say that. He says, guys, come stay under the shelter of my roof. And then tomorrow morning, be on your way. Because Lot knew. He said, they said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and he entered 
and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, take note of that. All the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called the lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out that we may know them. And this is not an introduction, by the way. This is a Hebraic term for intimate sexual knowledge. Lot went out to the to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him. He didn't want those inside to hear this conversation. He said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and you do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Boy, I pondered that one long and hard. How do you give your daughters to the men of the city? You thought about that? This is righteous lot. A couple things that come to my mind. And is this bad fathering? Absolutely. That's a given. It's cowardly. But, But there's a couple other things that come to my mind as well. Lots thinking. We read a passage this morning regarding the king of Moab. What did he do? With his oldest son, the one who would would be um, inheriting the throne and taking over the rule for Moab. What did he do? Sacrificed him on the wall in front of everyone. What does a godless culture, how does a godless culture view children? How does a godless culture view children? Think about that. Disposable. Had Lot's mind been impacted by the culture, by the men he called brothers? Had his thinking been that warped to think that my daughters are disposable because they're just not that valuable? The other thing that came to my mind is, is Lot acknowledging, albeit tacitly, that he had already lost his daughters. Had Lot lost his daughters? They were betrothed to two men. What is the scripture? The text tells us every man from the city was outside the home. Lot's daughters were engaged to two of those guys. Two of those dudes were outside partaking of this wickedness. What were his daughters thinking? We know that his daughters were not immune to the immorality we find later as we read further, don't we? My point is this, the city had impacted his family immensely and his thinking. We, as the body of Christ, desperately need to have our minds renewed by God's word. How do we know we're thinking like the world? How do we know? I can't read your thoughts. You can't read my thoughts. How do we know? What affects what we do, doesn't it? We have to have our minds renewed by the Spirit of God through the reading, the hearing, the studying of his word. That's what sanctifies our minds. You don't know what you're thinking until you begin to compare the thoughts that have, have built these high towers in our minds, these idols, if you will, until we confront those elevated ways of thinking with God's word. Casting down vain imaginations, the scripture says. 
Those are wrong patterns of thought. I want you to see from this passage that Lot had a had an established wrong pattern of thinking that was directly in line with those he called his brothers. He steps outside and he says, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Notice when the going got tough, they offered no loyalty to Lot. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they turned on Lot. Then they pressed hard against the man. Lot drew near to break down the door, but the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out. Notice this. He went out to his sons-in-law. Who, and the reason scripture calls them sons-in-law is because they were betrothed to marry his daughters. So they had already, um, in, in, in Old Testament custom, when we talk about betrothal, you're married. When you give your word in, in engagement, you're married. But he goes out to see his sons-in-law. And he says, up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. Notice their response. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting, joking. Now, what what did his sons-in-law just witness? Just prior to, to Lot coming out and say, guys, you need to leave and you need to leave quickly. What did they just seen? The two angels struck the city blind. It wasn't just physical blindness. It was upon the city. It was spiritual blindness. These two, these two men, his, his future son, son-in-laws, did not even see what was about to happen. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. And as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Look at verse 16. But he lingered. He lingered. What what is Lot's perspective of the holiness of God and the righteous wrath of God coming upon the city? How seriously is he taking it? He witnessed what the angels did. He witnessed the great wickedness of the city. He witnessed what the angels did to protect them and spare them through the night. And Lot lingers. Why? Was he packing? Holding on to the world. He's holding on. And you think think about what is he holding on for? Who do you think didn't want to go with him? His wife, probably his two daughters. I can't leave my, my betrothed. So Lot is is trying to, 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 to stall. He's trying to buy time. He lingers. Listen to this. And this is the grace of God. So the men seized him. The men seized him. Lot, let's go out the door. And his wife and his two daughters by the hand. This is a picture of God's intervening grace, isn't it? 
Spirit of God seizes us in our sin, in our depravity, in our bondage, in our blindness, in our ignorance, our willful ignorance, and seizes us and rescues us. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, God not giving to Lot what he deserved. And they brought him out of the city and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to him, oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. You have shown me this great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills. Why? (laughs) Think about what he's leaving behind in the city. That's the picture here. I can't be inconvenienced to live like Rambo in the hills. I can't help but think of your coffee commercial, brother. Amen. Sorry, little free, little free commercial there for you. <laughs> but lots, lots saying to the angels, I know you're going to destroy the city, but I'm going to die in the wilderness. It's not what I'm about. Let me escape. He said, behold, the city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. It kind of reminds me of our Bible study this morning where he takes... the the sacred rock and he sets it aside and hides it and keeps it. Lot says to the angel, I I just want to go to the little city. Do you see the the thinking that is infected Lot's mind? Let me escape there. It's just a little one and my life will be saved. He said to him, behold, I grant you this favor also. God being gracious to him, that I will not overflow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Think about that. God had sealed Lot, and he said to the angels, do not destroy the city until you have protected my anointed. So the angels say, it's time for you to go because you don't want to be here for what's about to take place. And and he overthrew those cities. Verse 24, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. That's how we know the scripture tells us that Lot's wife was not with him. She didn't want to leave. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Romans 9 in scripture looks at the ungodliness of Sodom and Gomorrah as a type of the ultimate and wickedness. And ungodliness, Romans 9, 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. The Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us the offspring or an offspring, that is the elect remnant, we would have been like what? Sodom and become like Gomorrah the epitome of wickedness. P. 
Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2, 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Listen to that. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, making them extinct to give an example of what will happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, listen, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And the Lord knows how to rescue the the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Jude 7 is the other mention we have of Sodom and Gomorrah. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding... By the way, there's only one chapter in Jude. So when I say Jude 7, it's Jude verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment, eternal fire. Note... Sodom and Gomorrah were not destroyed for their lack lack of hospitality. That's not why they were destroyed. The angels had been sent to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah long before the, the, the people in Sodom and Gomorrah rejected them and wanted to abuse and mistreat them. That was a well established fact. God didn't decide to reign fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah because of how they treated the angels. It was already a foregone conclusion. And I've heard people, I had a conversation with a youth pastor saying that they were punished because this was not consensual. I said, friend, with all due respect, you should not be teaching children. You should not be in the ministry. Where is the warning that God's wrath and judgment will come for this kind of behavior. Jude Jude is very clear. They were punished for sexual sin and specifically unnatural desire. This is the character, the thinking, if you will, of the city, city of Sodom. The second one mentioned is Egypt. God repeatedly warned Abraham. Don't go down to Egypt for help. Why? Don't go down to Egypt for help. Isaiah 30, verse 1. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction. Just like we talked about in our Bible study this morning who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame in the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. What did Egypt do to the people of God? They enslaved them. I want you to think about something else though. Before Israel got to point to the point of enslavement, when you read Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2, what did Pharaoh do to the children of Israel, specifically to the children of the children of Israel? They said, children of Israel getting much too strong. Let's kill their children. 
Remember? Then we have the Hebrew midwives who stepped up and said, we're not going to let that happen. Yes, they disobeyed a direct order from the king of Egypt. And what did God do for them? He blessed them. See, the principle there is when when someone tells you in authority to do something that is counter to the ultimate authority, what must you do? You obey God. But they attacked Israel's children. Then they enslaved them for 400 years. Mass infanticide because they were growing too strong. And they enslaved them. And notice this, just like Lot, they had to be miraculously delivered, didn't they? How, you say, why didn't Israel just go on strike? Put up a a, a great big inflatable rat out in front of Pharaoh's um, palace and say, you know what? We're not making any more bricks. Because they were enslaved. They had no means of getting out. That's the picture of slavery here. It's a picture of bondage. When you are in bondage to sin, you can't get out of it yourself. Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he says, here, here are my commandments. Hebrews eleven twenty six. he, Moses, considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You know, I, I was thinking about that. Many times, human wisdom would say, you know, Moses had an in, right? He was essentially Pharaoh's son. He could have saved Israel another way. And they could have all been prosperous. They could have joined league with Egypt. Moses would have been a great mediator between the children of Israel and Pharaoh. It's not how God saw it. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. The third city I want you to see this morning is Jerusalem. This is the city of peace. Profoundly religious Jerusalem is. And by the way, Jerusalem is still profoundly religious. Yet they murdered the Lord, the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel. And here in Revelation chapter 11, we find a dishonorable mention of Jerusalem and an indictment of the nation of Israel. Do you see what's happening here? The Lord Jesus is making no differentiation between Sodom and Egypt and those who crucified the Lord. Matthew 23, 37, Jesus says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hand gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. The apostles, as they preach in Acts 13, making friends and influencing people. In Acts 13, verse 26, they said, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham. And those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understood the utterance of the prophets. Now, think about that. The whole point of Old Testament revelation was to do what? To point to the coming Messiah. 
How great is the blindness of the nation that they did not see that everything they studied weekly, daily, wrote it on their hands, wore it on their clothes, put it on the doorposts of their house. They didn't recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which were read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Verse 38 of the same chapter, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though this man or through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him, every one of everyone who believes is freed. A hint back to the rebel to the bondage that they were in with Egypt from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. What is the work that Israel would not believe? That God was going to send his gospel to the Gentiles. Verse 46 of the same chapter, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out loudly, saying it was necessary, listen, that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying God. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Elect Gentiles. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, listen to this, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. And look at their response in verse 51. They shook the dust off their feet against them. This is Jerusalem. They shook the feet off the dust from, or they shook the dust off their feet against them. Well, where does that come from? Well, Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, he says, These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. God told, Jesus told his disciples specifically, go first to Israel. Go first to the nation of Israel. Why? Well, he says, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go to the lost sheep and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. What is Jesus telling his disciples to do? Be a witness against the nation of Israel. Verse 11, and whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy. That is, the word worthy there in the Greek is axia, of weight, of substance. When you enter the house, and he's telling his disciples, make a judgment. Are these people what they claim to be? Many, many tekel youths are in that, that picture that we find written on the wall by the finger of God. You have been weighed, you have been measured, and you have been found wanting. He tells his disciples, size up those who, whose homes you come into. Verse 14, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, listen to this. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that 
town. So to sum up, the character of the earth dweller is symbolized here in these three cities. All three are pictured as persecutors of the people of God. Sodom is characterized by its sexual impurity and sensual conduct. They would not submit to the law of God. They scoffed at the warning of Lot and the angels, and they were in bondage to sin and heavily influenced Lot and his family. That's a warning to us. Egypt, wealthy, prosperous, luxurious. What else? Idolatrous. As God frees Israel from the bondage of Egypt, he takes down every one of their gods and puts them in their place. But that relationship with Israel and Egypt led to bondage and the murder of their children. Jerusalem, rebellious, rejected the warning of the prophets, steeped in religion, refused the Messiah and murdered him. So the question that's before us this morning as we think about this is, what is my relation to this world? It's cities. I'm not talking geography here. I'm talking about people. What am I relying on for my safety? Where am I taking refuge? If I might be just a modern-day observer of our American culture, One of the things that I see prominently displayed is our city of refuge in our culture is our political parties. They will save us, won't they? Think about the unimaginable corruption that we witness by both parties. Both. And it's overlooked. Why? Because, well, this is my team and that's your team. My team's better than your team. Our culture is comfortable and it looks for places to find refuge that are anything but God. We've made our government a God and it's corrupt. Oh, it's so corrupt. So the question that comes to mind here is, does this mean that every Christian everywhere will be martyred? We talked last week about um, statistics regarding current real-time persecution in this world. And the answer is no. This is a picture that 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 shows the refining of the church via persecution. That's what's being imaged here for us. How do I know that? Well, because scripture says so. Matthew 24, 15 through 22. But just look at verse 22. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect... Those days will be cut short. We look down in verse 31 of Matthew 24, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. The point is, is that the elect are alive and present until the very end. Now, we do all sorts of eschatological um, warping and twisting to try and redefine who the elect are. But scripture's clear on that. We'll talk about the pre-tribulation rapture next, next week, I promise. But the point is, is that the elect are alive and present until the end. That is to say that the entire church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not martyred. Now, there are many. But the point is, is that the suffering of the church is real because we must follow in his steps. Verse 9, for three and a half days, some of the people in tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. 
Here again is a close association of the two witnesses, the church, the bride, with the time that the Lord was in the tomb. Do you notice that? Lord was in the tomb for three days. I want to point out the fact that we see the venomous disdain and the antagonizing mockery of the earth dweller against the child of God here. John chapter 15, Jesus tells his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Does he intend for us to follow in his steps? If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They have kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Now, why why is the church persecuted by the earth dweller? Well, Jesus tells us here in John 15, verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, that has been a witness to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. This is the essence of the issue. This is the reason that the earth dweller hates the two witnesses. What is the two witnesses doing? They're prophesying in sackcloth, mourning over their own sin while they're declaring God's mind against the sin of humanity and the impending death sentence. Jesus said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Why do they have no excuse for their sin? Because because God has given them a witness. The church takes away the excuse for sin. Nobody can look in this world and say, God, when I stand before you in judgment, I never realized I was this sinful. I never realized I was this wicked. He's removing the excuse. Whoever hates my hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have been guilty of sin. Why did Jesus tell his disciples, go perform miracles, go do healing, go do all these signs among this in the city of Jerusalem as a witness? They hated me without a cause, verse 25. But when the helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And listen, and you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The earth dweller will will look on and refuse to respect the two witnesses. One of the pictures here, and it was very common that if, if you died, what happened? Especially in Old Testament custom, the body was treated very well. It was preserved. It was perfumed. We think about the burial of the Lord Jesus. Here is a picture of the ultimate disrespect that the earth dweller has for the church. Verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. What makes the message of the prophets a torment? Why do they see the voice of the the two witnesses as a torment to them? They didn't want to give up their sin. Notice that Christmas comes early. 
There is a street party here. There is the exchanging of gifts. It's a mass celebration. Why? Well, because the nagging conscience, those intolerant bigots, those who would not accept my sin like Jesus does, unloving voices have all been silenced. And so the party is on. The essence of what we see being worked out in our culture right now is the silencing of the conscience. And and you don't even have to say it. Just you living in a way that is pleasing to God and rejecting the culture and the world around us and how they live and their rebellion, you are a, a searing reminder in their conscience that God is going to hold them accountable. And it bothers them. Might even say triggers. Scripture says they are tormented here. I'll give you one more passage as we close this morning. Second Peter chapter 3. The, the party, the celebration. I don't know if you guys have ever been to one. I remember growing up in Pennsylvania, they used to have what's called a block party, where the entire community comes out and they have a great big shindig in the, in the middle of the, the town. That's what the picture here is. And Peter explains this in Second Peter chapter 3. He says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved, in both of them. By the way, this is his last chapter that he writes before his death. He says, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now, what does the culture do regarding the warning of the prophets who rejects them? Verse 4, they will say, or verse 3, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Now, why do scoffers say that? Because if they think in their minds that the, the judgment of God is imminent, it steals away their fun. And so they'll mock They'll mock in mass, by the way. The more they can join in, the better. The more, the merrier. The more that, that, that restate the lie that God is never going to judge this world, the more it feels true to them. And so this is done by silencing the church. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. What is Peter saying? The Lord at creation had already ordained how he was going to deluge the water by flood. That's how long he had been patient to humanity. Verse 7, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
He's talking about the forbearance that he has towards the elect until each one of them, every one of them, comes to repentance. Just like he told the angels at Sodom, do not destroy the city until all of my righteous are sealed. That's why God is delaying. Not because he's asleep, not because he's forgotten, not because he overlooks the wickedness of our culture. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is not universalism here. Who is he talking about? Not wishing that any of you. Peter says, I'm writing the second time to you, beloved. He's not talking about universal salvation for the entire world. The Lord's up there wringing his hands because he doesn't want to bring judgment on the entire world for their wickedness. That's not what he's saying here. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief when the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are that are um, done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then his final words to the beloved. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks to them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Peter is reminding us that the forbearance of God is for the salvation of the elect. It is not because he is not angry with the wicked. In the meantime, The emphasis of the church is to be on what? Our sanctification. Are we ready? If the Lord Jesus parts the clouds today, are we ready to stand before him? Are we at peace with him? Will he find us without spot or blemish? What does that mean? Will the Lord Jesus find us finding him as our city of refuge when he comes back? What is our refuge? What is our salvation? If it's in this world, then we will not be found without spot and blemish. In the meantime, as the world around us burns down, what are we to focus on? Peter says it. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. For closing application this morning, just three things. The earth dweller is defined by his or her character in opposition to the Lord Jesus, and by extension, the bride. And as we think about the example of Lot, I want you to think this morning, and I I want especially young people and teenagers to think about this. What is my relationship with the city of this world, our culture, 
What is my relationship with it? Am I calling them brothers? Am I calling them friends? Who are your friends? Are your friends, your closest friends, are they encouraging you in your relationship with the Lord? Are they encouraging you to keep eternity as the focus of your mind and not set your affections on the things of this world? Those are good friends. Those are the friends that you need to surround yourself with because we need that encouragement. That's why the body of Christ exists, by the way. We need that mutual fellowship and encouragement to keep our eyes on the prize. But where is your home? There is a a contrast here between the earth dweller and the heaven dweller. What is my refuge? And then I would ask you this. When the Lord Jesus comes back, the church and its mission is to warn the world of impending judgment. Get out. Scripture says, says, come out from among them and be separate. The Lord Jesus said in John 17, they're in the world, but not of it. We, We mix that up sometimes, don't we? And forget that we're not of this world. God's called us to be here, to be salt and light in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. But he has called us out of it. He's released us from our chains. The question for us is, are we lingering? Have I been rescued from this world or do I still love it? First Peter 4, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. I want to ask you this. What does God do in the life of the church, specifically in the life of believers, to, to loosen our love for this world? What does he do? Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Do I love this world? And one of the things that the Lord will do is part of sanctifying his church to make them ready to leave. We, we, we think about that night before uh, Israel exited Egypt. What did he do? Pack your clothes, put them on your back and eat unleavened bread. Why? Because your delivery is imminent. If the church lives with that mindset and is mindful of the fact that the Lord is coming back imminently, I'm not going to put anchors down here. I'm not going to build my forever home. And then lastly, scoffers will mock and hate. They will. But I want to remind you of something. If we're doing it right, if we're living as we ought to, We're not going with the flow. We're not sitting still so as to not rock the boat boat of our culture. Scoffers will mock and hate. But remember this, before the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ rescued us, such were some of you. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world 
among whom also we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The, the warning of the church, the message of the two witnesses, is to warn the world who we used to be a part of, who we were miraculously delivered, snatched out by the naps of our neck, to warn them that God's judgment is coming and to flee it. It's not going to be well received, but for the elect, when his sheep hear the call of the gospel, they will rejoice in it. Just like uh, the Gentiles did when the gospel was brought to them, they rejoiced in it. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. The message of the church is to rescue the sheep. And then the Lord comes back. In the meantime, he's going to loosen our grip on this world. And he does it through suffering and persecution. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this picture that we have. Lord, we thank you that you do not lie to us and tell us that we will have it comfortable until you return. You do not set up false expectations for your people. Lord, I pray that as we consider your word, pray especially, Lord, for our young people who have to live in this culture, go to school in it, work in it, intermingle with it, the incredible pressure that is brought to bear by this world, to love it, to embrace it, to be welcomed by it. Lord, I pray that you would loose our grip on this place, that we would be ready to go see you. We ask, Lord, that you would do whatever is necessary in our lives to prepare us for your imminent return. Help us to be faithful in proclaiming your word without compromise. Father, doing it in the spirit of love, which you have commanded us to do, recognizing that we, too, used to be like the rest of mankind. Thank you for, for rescuing us out and saving us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus this morning, in whose name we pray. Amen.